Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Today's guest is a very good one, Matt Sainkomb from The Hard Times. You've probably seen The Hard Times articles shared a million times on your Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, everywhere else, because that's what people do with The Hard Times. They share the articles. These guys are incredibly good at creating those kind of like viral, shareable headlines. But more than that, there's actually a real business behind that site. And Matt is one of the people, one of the co-founders actually responsible for putting that together. So that's what we talk about in this episode. A look kind of behind the scenes of the hard times, how they went from being just a little side hustle that him and his partner Bill started with 800 bucks to actually getting a successful exit. They sold it for a million dollars, I think, about a year ago. We get into all of that as well as some tips for anybody else who is interested in getting into like media or publishing or wants to start a company. It might sound like that's not very punk, but as we talk about in this episode, it actually is pretty punk. But before we get into it, I wanted to mention a couple ways that you can support the show if you are so inclined. Number one, you can share it on social media. That really helps a lot. Just tag us, tag the guest. Number two, we have some new merch, which you can check out if you want. There's a link to that in the show notes. And number three, if you really, really, really like us, you can support us on Patreon. It is because of the support of the patrons that we're able to do the show at all. That's how we're able to pay Deanna, the producer and editor, who is amazing and makes the whole thing happen, as well as the software and other stuff that we use to make the show. So thank you very much for your support. There's a link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out. And with that out of the way, let's get into the episode. Matt. Welcome to the podcast. I guess just to start with, let's let's get right into it. I heard that you are a liar and a scumbag. That's not true, but the truth is far, far worse. <laughs> I wish the only thing that I was was a liar and a scumbag. The truth is I'm also a cheat, a scoundrel, a no good scallywag. I've taken out $47,000 in loans in my girlfriend's name while she was asleep. It's really rough over here. So I'm glad that you reached out because no one else will have me on their podcast. Well, in all seriousness, though, as I was preparing for this, I was looking at your Twitter and it, it seems like you do uh, weirdly get accused of being a lot of bad things. Maybe I am those bad things. Maybe it's, you know, maybe I just don't like looking in the mirror. Recently on Twitter, I had uh, 800 furries in my replies. Wow. I had angered a nest of furries. I don't know what, what do you call a bunch of furries in a group? That's a good a question. Yeah. Well, you know, I think running a satire website is a little bit like uh, every day you start off and you think, you know this because your history, every day you start off and you go, you know, which oddly specific niche or activist group on the internet am I going to inflame today? Sometimes I get emails from people. I don't even know what they're referencing. They're just like, as a member of the victims of train wrecks, I want to just say <laughs> that you're, <laughs> I find it incredibly insensitive. Yeah. You're like, Jesus. Yeah. My whole family died in a plane crash, sir. 
I don't <laughs> Clearly, my intent uh, with that Fugazi joke was to mock the death of your family. You know, one time Ian McKay actually reached out to me because of a Fugazi joke. Or I, I reached out to him trying to convince him to come on my podcast. And he's like, your website is a pain in my ass. Because <laughs> apparently he gets these emails from weird European guys who are just like, is it true? Are you getting back together? I heard something about the tickets because we did some headline about them uh, refunding people's tickets. Ian, why have you begun to smoke marijuana? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's, he actually forwarded me some of the emails that I was laughing my ass off. So it's like maybe like, you know, once a month or so, Ian McKay gets an email of someone questioning something that they read on the hard times. Well, my advice, I mean, especially with GDPR, you know, this might just make your life easier in a, a few different ways. So just block all European IPs. Yeah, man, that, that GDPR stuff is weird. Until they can pass a test indicating that they have a sense of humor, which 99.9% .9 of Europe would not be able to pass. I love I love the enforcement of those sorts of things. There's just like a bunch of people, a bunch of government officials in a room, like write down like, thou shalt not collect data on yeah. any website in the world. Right. And then it's like, what are they going to, they're going to come chase me down. Well, my favorite part of GDPR. So for anybody who's listening to this, doesn't know what it is. GDPR, I think it's general data privacy regulation or something. It's a European law that essentially dictates how you can and cannot use and collect data but it's very vague so no matter how hard you wanted to implement this uh, this law it's extremely difficult to know whether you've done it or not uh, and one of my favorite things about it is so it requires that you uh, give people an option to delete their data uh, and one of my favorite things is if someone reaches out to you and asks if you have deleted their data you can't answer that question because in order to answer that question you would have to have their data or know that you have had their data yeah, it's weird too because there's even stuff where it's like, did you delete the data related to me asking you to delete the data? Right, exactly, um, exactly. You know, I mean, data protection is important, but it's really interesting becoming a small business person and watching some of the laws that my friends advocate for. And I'm like, really, how do you expect a small business to handle some of these requests? And what almost always ends up happening is uh, the small business just like Google's like, how do I handle GDPR? And then there's uh, some plugin that's like 50 bucks a month. And I guess that's good enough. You know, that's what we do. I have no idea whether that would actually protect us, you know, if, if it was litigated, but you don't have to be the fastest swimmer if there's a shark in the water, right? You just have to not be the right. slowest. So when a lot of these laws get passed, uh, when you're a small business person, you go, okay, well, what would get the regulator just to say, it looks like they're trying, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, I put it in my privacy policy. You know? Speaking of which, when did you realize, so I remember when you started the hard times, mm -hmm. when did you realize that this was, you know, a quote unquote real business? You know, I don't think it became a real business for at least a year and a half or two years into the project. I was hopeful that there would be a market for it, but I wasn't sure. And within the first month or two, it became very clear that millions of people were interested in reading this, this sort of stuff. How did you know that millions of people were interested? They were on the site. Within the first month, we had millions of people. Wow. And I, you know, so I could feel the organic viral nature of it. It was at a time when Facebook would really let anything fly as far as uh, organic reach. So this is around like 2014 or something like that? Late 2014, yeah. I would log on to my Facebook in the morning and it would, the top nine posts would be friends of mine from around the world that I had met through touring. 
sharing hard times articles like that hard times article that day we would have twenty thousand people like our facebook page and we'd have organic reach on a single post of a million people two million people those are the days for publishers right (laughs) yeah it was like they had invented this amazing technology where if an idea was a positive one that friends wanted to share it could really go around the world very quickly and so we had millions of people on our website but we didn't yet have the skills to understand how to monetize those views and uh, we also didn't quite have the skills to understand how to scale up our business to to capture all of that energy. What do you mean by scaling? Like, what would some of those things be? I mean, we put out one article a day for probably two years. And across all your properties now, you must have dozens a day. You know, I think we're still at maybe between seven to nine. Some days a little more if there's some breaking news. I still am a believer in quality over quantity when it comes to organic reach comedy. I, I think that if you can have an ace hit out there, that's going to be better than than five things that people kind of chuckle at. So I still push for that. But thinking back about when we launched this thing and it became immensely popular very quickly, if I had the skills I had today, I could have made a lot of money in that time, uh, but I didn't. So were you not monetized at all then? Or wh- where, where were you at? I had a general belief that Within the first year, I thought that we shouldn't really have ads because I thought that our core thing that we were building was our brand. And I thought that we could maybe increase our brand name, cement our, our reputation, and I thought we could sell directly to advertisers, fans and such. And I would meet with those sort of people every once in a while at, at various different events, like maybe like the uh, Alternative Press Music Awards or something. And they would say oh, they're, they're a fan of my site. And I, I had this general belief that the brand that we were building was going to be valuable enough that we were going to get some of this old school direct ad sale business. Um, but looking back on it, you know, even once we decided to start putting ads on the site, I didn't 100% know how to build an ad business. So I started dealing with not the best ad partners and, and some of the best ad partners wouldn't even talk to us. Can you talk about the difference for anybody who's not familiar with like when you say direct ad buys versus, you know, ad networks? Can you explain that? Imagine you've got a publication and you've got a million eyeballs each month. The old school way of doing that advertising business is uh, someone from Macy's gets on the phone with you and they say, we want to run a banner ad or a centerfold ad if it's a print paper. And uh, we're going to give you X amount of money for this amount of impressions or this amount of runtime. So let's say uh, $20,000 for the month. And that's our banner ad. And it goes to Macy's.com and it advertises this sale that we have, right? And we're doing this because we think that your brand, your readers are going to be our customers. That is like a direct ad sale. Programmatic ad sales is you put a line of code on your website and bidding starts to happen on the space. And there's a marketplace of tens of thousands of advertisers all bidding for general ad space among certain demographics. And pretty much what ends up happening is Macy runs an ad on your website, but they pay 10 cents instead of a dollar. And you know they compete against all these other people. So Vans, I would meet them at the APMAs and they would run ads on my site all the time, but I never got them to do the direct ad sale business because why would they? They would just go through Google or any one of the various ad partners that we had on the site at the time. So I, w- I had this belief that I was building up a v- valuable brand to the point where I was going to get significant direct ad sale business. And then during the time, there was also another business that was being formed, you know, uh, like my friend from Brooklyn Vegan had, which was you build up a, a valuable brand and then you outsource your ad department to uh, like Town Square or someone else who pays you a guaranteed sum of money each month and then handles your ad business through direct ad sales and um, programmatic ad, a combination. Um, I ended up mostly doing all this stuff myself. I, I cut a couple ad deals. 
I worked with Vice. I worked with Consequence of Sound. I worked with the Metal Injection guys for a little while. I just pieced it all together, but I never really went all in with any one particular person because uh, I was never I could never quite get the deal that I was hoping for. I feel like we kind of came in at the end of the party there a little bit, hard times. We were kind of like, hey, we've got millions of eyeballs on our website at a time where people were like, you know what's not valuable? Millions of eyeballs on a website. <laughs> Text. Yeah, so me and my co-founder, Bill, we would joke around and be like, man, if we started this thing in the 90s, we would be like at the Playboy Mansion right now, but it'd right. be like called the Hard Times Mansion. Instead, we're, we still have day jobs. And so how long did the day jobs last? I think I had mine for two years. I think Bill had his for three, something like that. That's So that, that's pretty cool that you're able to quit your day jobs after two or three years with a scene comedy blog. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a huge thing. I think I maybe pulled the trigger a little bit too soon on my quitting of my job. I actually got an email from Vice. They they were doing our, our part of our ads at the time, and they t- sent me an estimate saying that they could estimate they were going to make $8,000 a month selling ads on our on our website. Uh, that was going to be my cut. They were going to sell yeah. sixteen dollars or $20,000 worth of ads, and I was going to get $8,000 like, net. sweet, I'm rich. I said, cool. You know, and I walked down the hall and I said, I've been thinking about this for a little while, while got to go. They knew that I was writing hard times. It was more popular than a lot of the stuff I was doing at this uh, SF Weekly. And then, you know, a month roll, rolled by that $8,000 never came in. Two months rolled by, $8,000 never came in. And, and almost no money ever came in. And I was eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Thinking, <laughs> Why did I quit that job, that cushy uh, music writing job? But eventually we pulled it together and we built a business. I like to tell people... You know, in the media world, I learned about the media business by falling into almost every pothole that you could along the way. Mm-hmm. So I used to be a writer, then I was an editor, then I was a publisher, and I just made pretty much every mistake that you can make in all those different positions. And then eventually that's how we figured it out. So I, when I think back, that was my learning process. That's fine. But I, I also go, damn, if I had the skills and connections I had now, back then, it'd be a different story. I could make a, a bunch of money. It'd be like uh, an 80s teen movie where, you know, 30-year-old Matt gets to go back and be in ninth grade again. Yeah, but uh, I guess, I don't know. You got to learn some way or another. Yeah. One particular question I have about the hard times is the nature of your content is such that it can be shared without actually clicking on or reading it. Uh Uh-huh. It mostly is, yeah. Yeah, and and so that's kind of an interesting thing is that it's like super viral, but you don't really capture any, well, you guys capture some value, but like you don't capture a lot of the value if something gets 10,000 shares. Yeah. How do you think about that? Uh, very painfully is how I think about <laughs> uh, Yeah, no, this is, a, this is a central problem of running a, a website that's focused on headlines. And being so good at writing. I mean, you guys are fucking great at writing headlines. Thanks. Yeah, we have a great team. Uh, it's, it's mostly not me anymore. The way I think about it is you dominate a niche. And then from that niche, that's like your, your base. And you can a- launch attacks out from that base. So we sort of dominated this subcultural headline niche and people started to understand our brand, understand our logo. They would see it all the time. Their friends would send it to them. From there, you start to do things like articles, which uh, the the main joke isn't 100% in the headline. Like here's 10 things so-and-so said to us while he was whatever. You know, there's like a joke where you want to, to dig a little deeper. And because they laughed at 20 of your headlines, they're like, well, it's probably worth clicking on this because their headlines are funny. There's a little bit of trust there. Another thing that we did is that a lot of satire sites actually believe so strongly 
they lean into the trend and they they actually will sometimes put out headlines where it's just a headline and a photo. We decided very early on that every single one of our articles was going to have a body to it, which I know doesn't sound like a revolutionary thought, but it was a little different than many people who are in the satire game, including a lot of people who just like put the headlines up on Twitter and stuff. And our goal was that every time you click one of our headlines, there is a significant laugh in there that would reward you. So it's almost like the people who are prone to clicking, they say, you know what? These guys treated me well last time. Yeah. That last line, that big kicker, it was worth it. I'm going to give them another shot with this click. And then we use that niche that we dominated, expand out into like podcasts. We have the Hard Times podcast, launch a bunch of different verticals like Hard Drive, our video game vertical. You do mailing list. You do live events. You do merchandise. Uh, you bring some of the content directly to the social media platforms. You put up a video that is hosted directly on the platforms. This may be sponsored by someone. Instead of having to pull people off the platforms, you monetize just on the platforms. You do a whole bunch of different stuff. But the truth is, you know, it's just the nature of the beast. And it, it's it's not that great of a nature. You would hope that people want to come to your site. Um, we do have some future plans around that. Um, I'm kind of thinking about ways we could turn our site into a little bit more of not just building an audience, but maybe building a community with some sort mm -hmm. of community elements in it that have a little bit more to do with commenting, a little bit more to do with user-generated content. That's sort of the, the future idea of the site. I'm really fascinated by businesses that make a lot more money with 10,000 diehard fans than they do with 1 million kind of lackluster audience members. So you always just have to evolve or die. So we're always just evolving. But yeah, that's as soon as you get a, a couple million people reading your headlines, immediate problem is, fuck, what do we do now? Because they're not coming, you know, only 10,000 of them got to the bottom of the article. It's a pretty good problem to have, though, all things considered. Considering the fact that we started it with 800 bucks, it is a good problem to have, right? Yeah. So we stumbled into this thing. And then we had a massive opportunity and we didn't fumble the opportunity, which there is There you good. go. Yeah. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, you mentioned spinning up some of those new properties and verticals and, you know, pieces of the business and stuff. I wanted to ask about that because it feels like you guys expanded pretty quickly into a lot of different things into quote unquote real content and, you know, mm -hmm. the podcast and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but hard money, is that your, yeah, that's, that's your thing? So, so yeah, so that's uh, finance news jokes the natural transition from punk to, to wall street I mean, <laughs> right. how could you how could you avoid it right man you're laughing because it's so obvious to you how stupid that is <laughs> but i thought that there was way more of, i mean that's the name of my channel like i mm -hmm. thought that there's way more of an overlap of that than there is like i foolishly thought that there was you know a decent sized amount of people who are into this kind of music who also care about cac ltv ratio and there is not <laughs> 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 yeah, I feel like you and I both got enamored with the core philosophy of this subculture, in my opinion, which is DIY, yeah. right? And when you take DIY to its logical extremes and you stay a part of the subculture and you grow up, it turns into just business, right? Yep. It turns into a punk-grounded, punk-rooted business. You become a business person. And so... You know, I started my journey, I guess, as an online poker player. I've always been fascinated with risk versus reward, return on investment, these sorts of things. What ended up happening is I uh, met a guy. Uh, his name is Enrique Abeta, a really interesting character, uh, former hedge fund manager. Uh, grew up really rough. Uh, he's a really interesting life story if you want to Google him. Uh, trailer parks, I think homeless for a while. He worked his way up, went to a great business school, got a job on Wall Street, became a hedge fund manager, managed a couple billion bucks, was very successful. 
decided uh, he wanted to quit Wall Street and buy his favorite music magazine, which was Revolver. <laughs> and then I guess he decided he wanted to scoop up hard times after that. Wanted to buy his like 10th favorite. 10th favorite, <laughs> I guess. Not quite, not, you know, it wasn't, let's just say he didn't leave Wall Street for hard times, right? I got all the good ones. So let's get the hard times now. He's a big metalhead, you know, tattooed up to his eyeballs. So he's the guy that bought Revolver. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Through a company called Project M. And uh, I met with him and I got to know him over the course of a couple months. And uh, we are very different in many ways, but I do feel like we share a lot of the same DNA. And uh, I felt that I could learn a lot from him. And uh, I liked his vision for hard times. Uh, We talked about all my different concerns for months. Uh, He satisfied all of them. Uh, I think maybe I might be the only guy to sell a media business and no one got fired. Everyone just got health insurance (laughs) and pay raises. So yeah, I mean, typically when you sell a media business, everyone's like, oh, fuck, I'm out of a job. Right. So the opposite. Check out this fucking background, dude. This Look was, at that. This is an old hard times, right? I just got to know him a lot. And to be honest, I'm a big believer in the idea that sometimes people come into your lives and you do deals with them, which are valuable, sure. But the little pieces of knowledge that they drop along the way, the little lessons that they can teach you are actually probably worth more than the deals. And so I wanted to keep him close. And he pitched this idea to me about starting a financial satire site. And uh, he brought in a couple of his buddies and we're co-founders on that now. So I, so not only did I sell a business to him, I also um, started a business with him. And so now he's one of my core business partners. Talk to him all the time. He's a great guy. Well, there's quite a few things there that I wanted to kind of poke at. But the first one is in spinning up all these new projects and verticals and all this stuff, what's worked and what hasn't? And, you know, do you have kind of a playbook now for when you want to do these things? Because the re- the reason I ask is because, you know, a lot of creative people have a ton of ideas and I think their tendency oftentimes is to spread themselves too thin mm-hmm. and take on too much. On the other hand, like you said, you know, you need to constantly adapt and especially in media, you know, mm-hmm. if you get too comfortable in any one place, then that's probably a bad place to be. So how do you kind of think about that, like finding new opportunities versus spreading yourself too thin? And, you know, what have you learned from that? You know, I think that you ever notice like on like Instagram hustle, porn, Twitter, or like entrepreneur.com sort of, there's like all these quotes with like an entrepreneur never gives up. He gets in there every day. He reads 15 books. I'll I'm a really big fan. I don't know if I'm doing it right, so I don't know if I can give anyone advice, but I'm a really big fan of uh, pulling the plug on things. So I like to take a lot of shots and I like to give it my all. I like to optimize. I like to adapt. I like to study the data. I like to see where our mistakes are, really fall in love with just focusing on the mistakes, trying to fix them. And then if it doesn't work after you've really tried to optimize it, you just pull the fucking plug. This is kind of the poker mindset, right? Of asymmetric risk profiles. Mm-hmm. Well, it's where I got started with is, you know, I'd play poker for five hours or whatever. Then I'd study my hand histories for one hour. And I'd say, look, I'm losing every single time I'm playing Jack 10 suited out of position. Like I'm playing it like a fucking idiot. Right. So when people talk about like, how do you expand or, or how quickly should you expand? I always think about it like, can I take a shot at this for a low amount of resources, but put my best foot forward. So like, I feel like it's a real shot. And can I can I do it for three to six months and actually see if the business would take off? And that's usually what I'm trying to do. So I did start hard times with 800 bucks. And, you know, so I do think in like a, unfortunately, I think kind of like a small way, which is I think doesn't help when you do some of the larger entrepreneurial projects. But I think, look, what could we do with five grand? You know, could we start a video game website with $5,000? And what would it look like? And what resources do we have that are not capital resources? What uh, human resources do we have? What uh, 
other social media pages that we have that can help boost this thing up. And we just take shots at stuff. So we've taken a couple of shots and failed pretty miserably. We launched a conspiracy theory website, uh, satire <laughs> website. It's called Truthbang. The tagline was the truth, but louder. And it had all these fake ads all over it for like bunkers and like solid gold American eagles and stuff. And some of this content was so fucking funny to me, but it was insane. So no one would ever share it because it's like, well, and now they wouldn't be able to. <laughs> now they wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Even if it did work, it, <laughs> yeah. I didn't even think about that. But man, it fucking plopped. I couldn't get a single person to read this website. We did it for a little longer than we should have. I think we did it for like four months or something. So it's still not very long though. I just got the group around and I said, look, this is a complete disaster. And they said, yeah, yeah we know, <laughs> you know, we were wondering when you were going to tell us to stop. And uh, so we had, we had to pull the plug on that one. I tried to do a, um, with my brother, Ed and my co-founder, Bill, we tried to do one called gut check that was MMA and pro wrestling. Once Joe Rogan read one of our headlines aloud on his podcast and we still didn't see any traction, that's when I was like, okay, well, this is fucking done. And this was satire also? Yeah, it was, it was like MMA satire and, and wrestling satire. I think maybe we had a little bit, we didn't have quite enough bandwidth. And I think maybe we weren't deep enough in the culture. I think that maybe if we were training jujitsu or something, we probably would have a be able to have some better reference points. We were just kind of fans of it. I will say this as somebody who's been watching MMA and doing MMA and jujitsu since the 90s, those fans do not have a great humor detector. Okay, so I think it was another, you know, pretty much all the jokes that, no, I don't, I don't wanna say all the jokes. There's a large portion of that audience that their version of comedy is just like, a picture of someone's beat up face after they lost and be like, you stupid bitch. And I'm like, <laughs> right. that you guy just got in there and, yeah. and like fought the number one guy in the world. Like, I, I don't, we had this, we were like, we don't want to like shame the, the people who lose. Yeah. Like we think they're warriors. And I think that maybe we just, we couldn't find our footing. Uh, maybe the audience wasn't there for it. And one thing led to another and we, did, we had to pull the plug on that one too. I've done quite a few other things. You know, we've launched some podcasts that were flops. We tried to do a TV show that was a flop. We couldn't get that picked up. I think I fail. I fail all the time. Yeah. This is an interesting point for anybody listening is, you know, that, that you don't have to sign up to doing this thing for the rest of your life. Like if you try, like if, if you want to try something new, that's cool. You don't have to like say, this is going to be my life for the next five years. Put your best foot forward, make a little plan, launch it in a presentable manner. Please don't launch something that's like hardtimes.wordpress.com. You know, launch it as it's supposed to look. Put in the 500 bucks, the 1,000 bucks, whatever it is, to your idea and present it to the world and see if you can gain some traction. I think it's a pretty incredible time right now in human history where so many things are so easy to create and launch. And I often look at some of my most talented friends and I wonder why it is they don't consider themselves small business owners and why it is they don't consider themselves like online content entrepreneurs because rich guy bad right and it's really interesting because it's like you know they're, they're always out there like hunting for jobs and stuff and i always think about look get four people together get a visionary content person get a business person get a salesperson, and get a tech person you can all have day jobs you all chip in one to two hours a night after work you don't need that much money. You need maybe 500 bucks, maybe a thousand bucks. You get yourself some emails, a custom URL, whatever. Probably not even that, really. This is like if you want to pay someone $400 for a logo, you know, it's like you can launch a lot of ideas for incredibly cheap, split up the equity, 25% a pop. You don't need to pay yourselves until, you know, that until there's extra money laying around. 
and you're off to the races. You're a business person. Get out there and get it. There's so many people that are so talented that I don't quite understand why they don't do that. Well, it's odd to me that there's sort of this unspoken or sometimes spoken, but I think unspoken assumption that in order to make money, you or if you are making money, you have done something unethical and unsavory. Right. Yeah. And, and I just don't really understand that. Or I even had people say me, uh, uh, tell me like, well, I kind of hate money, which is like a, a crazy phrase. But my co-founder actually said that to me. Well, what was happening was I had a, a noted communist slash socialist on my podcast, uh, Brace Belden. He's a friend of mine from the punk scene who grew up, who went off and actually fought in these conflicts in the Middle East. Hmm. He started a great podcast called True Anon, but if you type in Brace Belden, you can read some stories about him. He went to go like volunteer as a fighter. Seems like a stable fella. <laughs> he's a, he, he's one of the most charismatic, talented people I know, but he it is definitely an insane thing to do. Yeah. And he was on my podcast and I was saying, man, you have the most amazing life story. You got you to gotta sell a book. You yeah. have to write a book, you know? And he was really resistant to the idea. He was laughing at me. He's like, come on, man. I went over there to fight for a cause. I'm not just trying to milk it for my own uh, benefit. And in that conversation, my co-founder Bill said, yeah, I think, you know, I'm the same way. I like, I, I, I hate money in that respect. I hate the, I, and I think that there's something that happens where people, they never have any money and it's really hard not to have money. And then eventually you get like jaded and bitter about it to the point where you think that money is itself kind of evil or shameful thing to have right like you've just associated the idea of money with unhappiness right when other people including your friend group or your family group don't have as much it would be shameful to have it and i think maybe i fell into that category too and eventually what i the mentality switch that i made was i realized when i was a kid growing up in the punk scene like i wouldn't wear any labels on anything and i realized maybe now my number one morale uh my number one like philosophy is that I want to take care of myself well enough that I can take care of the people around me that I care about. Right. So like you were talking about before, and this is what I wanted to ask about, you know, you're giving people health insurance. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I forget the tweet, but you talked about how you're able to kind of take care of people and you wouldn't be able to do that without running a successful business. Right. And so, you know, there's this whole thing where I think sometimes idealism, clashes with responsibilities and i've turned into a guy who's a little bit less idealistic and a little bit more uh loaded up with responsibilities and i like having responsibilities i got a, i got some employees and they've got kids and i care about them i care about their kids and you know i'm happy taking the blows too it's like yeah you know what i'm an evil <laughs> entrepreneur whatever man but anyways the end of my story is you know brace he told me hey man that's not me right now brace has created a business that I am so jealous of since. He created a podcast called True Anon. I'm a huge fan of this podcast because Brace is truly one of the most charismatic people in the world. Like he just exudes jokes and confidence and charisma. He's got a Patreon. I think they make like fifty or sixty thousand dollars a month on their Patreon. Oh wow. This is a business that has two hosts, one producer, a couple microphones. Super high margin. <laughs> right? These people are just fucking crushing it yeah. right this is like i mean that's maybe what he would have got on a book advance on my stupid sure. idea maybe maybe and so i feel like there's this interesting thing happening out there where the only moral way to make money according to the internet is through a patreon i'm not sure what <laughs> right that's that true <laughs> i don't you know only fans like i don't yeah. yeah i'm confused as to how that's more righteous than <laughs> every anything else but every way of making money is evil Except right. a subscription exclusive content business. I don't know what that is. And I, I guess people think that if you sell an ad, you're beholden to your advertisers. Which is true. 
it's it's true if that's how you operate. But by the way, you're beholden to Patreon. You're beholden to your audience too. I mean, you ever see a content creator get cap like captured by their audience? I've seen it. They absolutely. know they can't. They know they cannot go too rough on Donald Trump, or they know they cannot go too rough on Bernie Sanders. Absolutely. We all have a boss. You know, I remember the uh, I, I used to work for Abercrombie and Fitch, and you know, the CEO was also the chairman of the board. And uh, I, I remember somebody telling him like, oh, well, that must be nice, Mike. You don't have a boss. And he kind of laughed and he was like, I have a million bosses. Everybody who shops at our stores. Yeah. Yeah. You're forced into certain things. You know, one of the nice things about hard times was the programmatic ad revenue stuff that I was complaining about. It means you get less money, but it also means you don't know your advertisers and your advertisers yeah. don't know you and no one fucking cares. Because they're not going to call you and <laughs> complain about some article because they don't even know their ad ran on your site. And they don't care. So Vans will run three grand worth of stuff on my site and we'll run an article about how Vans fall apart and no one knows and no one cares. I'm trying to think of a single time we've never gotten a complaint from an advertiser. Sometimes we will be pitching certain advertisers and I'll say, hey, can you, for example, one time with a warp tour, I said, this is my big editorial. Uh, <laughs> this is this is like my big corruption. Your heavy handed uh, editorial oversight. We had a joke that was like a. Uh, Warp Tour stages move back 100 yards to comply with sex offender laws. Right. And I told the guys, I said, look, I'd really love to sell some ads to Warp Tour. Give me three or six months to see if I can pull that off. And if not, we'll let them have it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so look, I mean, we all are corrupted in our own ways, but I would think if, if Warp Tour was willing to chip in to help out our project and I could help pay my people more, I think that they would be happy with that. Well, and, you know, and that's a little bit of a difference there because this is jokes, not journalism, and you don't have any moral obligation to, you know, tell this joke this week. Roast some people. Yeah, I, you know, so I, I think that that probably helps too. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like 
dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use HyperFollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. And let's get back into it. You talked about equity a minute ago, and I saw that you tweeted about this, that you gave the editors a hard drive equity. Can you explain to people why you made that decision? And I, I guess just to break it down to basics, what is equity and, and why why would you want to give that to your editors and why would they want to get it? Yeah, sure. Okay. So let's think uh, you and I are creating a podcast together, um, me and Finn, and we don't have any money. Now, we both think this podcast is a good idea. And we're go- both going to spend a bunch of time doing it. One of the ways to guarantee that at the end of the day, when this thing actually takes off, we both share in the spoils is we split the podcast company 50-50, right? And we both have some responsibilities. Maybe you're in charge of booking the guests. I'm in charge of trying to sell the ads or building the website, whatever it is. It gets a little more complicated when you build a site kind of early and then later on you're adding it. Uh, employees or freelancers and you want to get them involved. So you can't quite do 50-50. That wouldn't quite be fair to yourself. My general rule of thumb is any editor, for a while, every editor at Hard Times had equity. Meaning what? That they own a piece of the company? They own a piece of the company. So if the company gets sold, they get paid out, which they did. And uh, we took it a step further. The editors who didn't have equity because uh, there was some rotation where we had like a, a crew of editors and then some of them left and new ones came on. So some of the, the ones that still didn't have any equity, we gave them a... And they hadn't vested or something or... Pretty much what ended up happening was I was... There were some people who had left with chunks of equity that I was a little unhappy with. I Got was it. like, oh, fuck, this person's gone. And they took... Cap table drama. Yeah. So I was kind of getting a little bit more stingy with it towards the end when we were bringing on new people. I was waiting around to see if they were going to right. stick around or build something really valuable for us. But what ended up happening is when we sold the company, we gave anyone who didn't have equity bonus checks as if they did. I always think it's so fucked up. Like I was reading this book about Instagram mm-hmm. and they had a similar sort of situation. So they sold for a billion dollars mm-hmm. and fucking Kevin Systrom didn't give any of those people anything. Yeah, that's crazy. I was like, I mean, really? Not even the dude made fucking hundreds of millions. He didn't even give the people like 50 grand. That's very bizarre. I do not understand how somebody could live with themselves and going to see those people at work the next day. And you're like, yeah, man, you don't get anything. But yeah, the headlines about me making 500 million bucks, that's all true. Uh, and no, you don't get anything. I, I couldn't quite do that. I feel like my general rule of thumb with equity is give people opportunities 
And if they build something valuable, I think you're morally obligated to give them equity. Meaning hard drive, our video game section was an idea I had really early on when, when hard times started popping off. I was like, we should expand into video games, but I need to get a group of people to help me with it. I eventually found it within our freelance pool, right? Now, those people actually were the ones who kind of took that idea, changed it, evolved it, created the voice, actually pushed it forward, actually did the work, right? And it, it took off. These people deserve to own a chunk of this company at this point. I mean, this is something where my rule of thumb is, look, if you give someone 5% of the company, but they grew the company by 6%, we're all coming out ahead. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in giving people equity. I also feel like really early on in my life, I was the editor-in-chief of the yearbook and uh, my advisor put me in charge of like a lot of stuff. I was like in charge of budgets and stuff, like just crazy. Like I was just running the yearbook and I asked her kind of why she was doing that. And she said, you know, people never work harder than when they have ownership over something. Mm -hmm. When it's theirs, they take care of it. If I told you you had to work this many hours and you, you know, then you would slack off. And I found that to be true. You, you tell someone, look, you're going to own 2% of this company because you created this podcast for us or this sub blog for us. And if we sell this thing because everything's going great, you're going to get a piece of the pie. You don't need to worry so much if that person's going to slack off. They're not going to. Yep. And if they do, well, that's on them, I guess. You know, especially because I think most of the people who work for us, I don't think that I don't think that they've had equity in a company before, right? So it's like right. it starts to become a little bit of like their nest egg. And I think that's an important mindset to, to to give to people. I don't want many of my freelancers to stay freelancers, meaning like I don't even want them to freelance for my site very long. Although it would be wonderful if they do. I want them to start their own projects. I want them to get full-time editor gigs places. I want everyone to use everything that we're doing as a platform and a stepping stone. And that's all going to come back to you eventually. I know you're not doing it selfishly, but it will come back to you eventually because those people are going to go on to be important people at other companies who will end up collaborating with you in some way or another down the road. You're going to get a call from somebody that built the next fucking, that built the next hard times. Right. That's going to call you and say, hey, Matt, uh, thank you for giving me a chance nine years ago. Here's this thing going on now. I would love for you to be part of it. Bill and I, always, Bill and I always joke. We, you know, we network with our interns, and we always be like, "Let us be a janitor one day," because yeah. you know, because <laughs> we always feel like kind of like that imposter syndrome. We're like, we're sure this is all going to blow up in our face eventually. So when one day you run a company, just <laughs> please don't forget us. I think of this the same way, and it's so strange to me that this is like a foreign way of thinking for a lot of people. Like I remember I worked at Office Max when I was like eighteen. And they would make us go in there at fucking 7 a.m. on a Sunday for like the store meeting and try to get us to sell more like credit card applications. And they're like, oh, you get 25 cents for each one. And it's like, I'm like, dude, I don't give a fuck about your credit card. I'm like, what do we, we got to hustle, guys. I'm like, dude, you pay me $6 an hour. I'm not going to fucking hustle for you. There is no hustle, right? Like you said, give people a piece of the action and they'll work. Or even tell tell them this. This is this is what we do. Is like check it out. Sometimes people come to me with this idea. They say, "Look, I want to create this podcast. I want to create this comic sketch or whatever, like this, you know, cartoon." I think if you put it on hard times, it would succeed. Blah blah blah. I say, "Look, let's put it on hard times. Just just make it. If this becomes at all a real thing that has, you know, you run it. You'll become a full time employee." Go for it. If you can create value for me, let's let's fucking do it. You know. Yeah. But yeah, the motivation is, is a 
is a weird thing. I mean, one of the main reasons why hard times exist is because I was a freelancer who would create some hit articles for places and they would all celebrate and they'd be like, congratulations, Matt, you did it. Our number one viewed article of the month. And I'd be like, cool, I got 30 bucks. (laughs) Keep them coming, Matt. Yeah, like who who cares, right? <laughs> and I, I'm grateful for all the opportunities I've had like that. Don't get me wrong, but there is a point where you realize, man, I'm making other people rich. And that's cool. Like sometimes that's a great opportunity, but there's also a point at which you're playing yourself if you stick around. I think you have to treat freelancing like a stepping stone so that one day when one of the editors who's a full-time person steps down, you're the obvious replacement. One thing we do at Hard Times is every year, it's kind of almost like a ceremonial thing. We, uh, we take 800 bucks and we give it to some freelancer with an idea that we tell them to go create the next hard times. And it's not something where we own any piece of this. It's just we're just saying, look, we want all of you to think in a way where mm-hmm. you can go do this yourself. I think that maybe in the past, maybe like when I was younger and not involved in this stuff, there's been this idea cemented that there's all these gatekeepers and uh, like, like you need the guys from hard times to approve of your idea to make it or whatever. Or like when need... people send me their band and like, what do you think of it? I'm like, it doesn't matter what I doesn't think. Matter. I'm just one fucking person. Yeah. There's 7 billion other people on the planet who matter a lot more than I do. Just go out there and fucking prove it. It's like, it, none of it matters. It's like, yeah. So sometimes I just want all my people who are involved in this project to think of it as like, look, if you think that there's an opportunity to do your creative thing, I almost sometimes, sometimes people pitch me things and they get weirded out by my response because I'll say, look, if this is a brilliant idea, why are you giving it to me? Yeah. Why would you not just keep this for yourself and, and become me? You know, it's a little weird, right? And the answer could be because you have some expertise that I don't about this, that, or the other. Maybe. And I, I would like your help with that. Yeah. Sometimes we do stuff like that. Or the answer could be, that's a good question. I don't really need you. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you do this. I do this. Uh, I have a lot of people reach out to me and uh, I just say, yeah, let's just hop on the phone. And and probably probably twice a week, I have hour-long conversations with people all across the, the world just trying to hone their ideas just because I'm like, yeah, man, good luck. <laughs> it's like an open office hours. <laughs> I love doing that. I just can't. I wish I could because I, really I really do enjoy that. I just literally can't do that and get my jobs done. I have a little bit of a selfish thought about it, which is um, I do feel like some of the people who I talk to will create some great shit. And I feel like they might come back to me with some problem. And the the solution to the problem might be that they need 10 grand and I can give them the 10 grand and be involved in their business once once they have it set up. I've thought about this exact thing though, that if anything that I'm involved with ever fell apart and I needed to fill you know, I needed another opportunity, I would do exactly this and just say, hey, let's talk about your ideas. And yeah, eventually something would come of that. You know, mm-hmm. here's my here's a link to my calendar, book some time, let's talk. And something yeah. would come of that, you know, just like you tweeted about, you know, how you found Bill by just kind of putting yourself out there. You know, yeah. I think it, it's a uh, it's like kind of a stupidly simple thing. It's like, well, how do I find a co-founder? Well, did you ask? Do you have co-founders in any of the stuff that you're doing? Yes. How did you find yours? Well, one of them I met at Golden Gods with the Metal Injection guys. Mm -hmm. The other one I met through, long story, but, you know, it's, it's all goes back to that. Like anybody that I know, it's because I did something like that of putting myself out there and just sort of saying, hey, I'm doing this thing. If anyone thinks it's cool, let's talk. Yeah. That's that's how I, I know everybody that I've ever known 
And it seems like a weird, like, it seems like people don't do that. And I understand that some people are afraid to put themselves out there. That makes sense to me. But the idea that it hasn't even occurred to people to just kind of ask is so strange to me. Yeah. For those that don't know, I think you're referencing a tweet where it's a screen cap and it's me in 2014 being like, hey, I'm thinking about starting an, like a, a punk satire website, kind of like The Onion, but for vice kids or hardcore kids. And you don't need any writing experience, but does anyone want to help me with this? And then one of the comments is, is Bill Conway. He turns out to be my co-founder of Hard Times, just being like, I'm all in. You have my number. Let's get going, right? <laughs> right. And then I think maybe a day later, he sent me like 50 headlines, which were better than many of the ones that I was working with. And I was like, hmm, this is the fucking guy. Let's do it, Mr. Bill Conway. Yeah. Well, I've, I've told this story before, but one of the people who just completely changed the trajectory of my life is a guy named Chase Jarvis, who is the founder of Creative Live, who I worked for. Before that, he was a fairly well-known photographer. And the way that I met him is that I worked at this print shop and we printed something for this ad agency that he owned at the time and it got fucked up. And for whatever reason, they were like, hey, can you go talk to him and smooth it over? And uh, I was like, all right. And so as we were waiting around for this thing to get fixed, I was just chatting with him and I hated that job. But, you know, if you've ever done printing, it sucks. And afterwards, I was so miserable. I was just kind of like out of options. I was like, you know, I'm just going to fucking call the guy. So I called him and was like, uh, hey, this is Finn from the print shop. Do you have a job for me? And uh, he was like, man, I, I wish we did, but we can't afford it. But then I got fired slash laid off a couple weeks later and I called him and I was like, good news. I'm available for free. And he was like, all right, well, let's do it. And, you know, then from that, I ended up doing work for like Nike and Nintendo and Red Bull. That's great. And once you have a couple big names on your resume, then it's like off to the races. And then I worked for him again at Creative Live years later. And so point being is just and there's a, I, there's other times I did stuff like that. And the person was like, yeah, this is weird. Fuck off. But you roll the dice like that and eventually it's going to work. That brings up brings up a couple points that I always think about. One is I do feel like free work gets in an overly bad name because yes. I do feel like free work is a worthwhile pursuit if there's lessons to be learned or networking to be done. And if it's not, it can't be more than like three months or six months. Like You, you cannot. By the way, they did end up paying me. They just didn't yeah. have any money up front. I, I do feel like some people fall into like, I've been writing blogs for this for this uh, website for free for three years. It's for like, nine years. Yeah, 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 you have to stop right now. Like, send an yeah. email, please. Like, I'll stay on the phone while you type an email saying that you're going to stop doing that. And then another thing that that comes around to that is I often feel like sometimes people go, oh, you know, how did you do this? And, and how did you do that? And I go, yeah, you know, I only had 800 bucks, blah, blah, blah. But I kind of forget to say or don't dive into the details that I was able to risk 800 bucks which was like my last bit of money because ultimately my parents would not let me starve and i didn't yet have very many responsibilities in my life and so i had a a safety net that let me try to be an entrepreneur and i feel like that safety net is not universal and it's not always acknowledged and i feel like a lot of times when people talk about their startup journey or their entrepreneur journey they kind of fail to mention Oh, by the way, you know, my yeah. parents were paying for me to be a poet at college. <laughs> and if I, you know, lost $3,000 printing up this poetry book, you know, I didn't have a kid to feed. My mom would scold me the end. Yeah, ex the end. Yeah. Right. And so I definitely was one of those kids where it's like, it would have been embarrassing to have to ask my parents for, for food money and stuff, but they would have sent it. Yeah. One of the hardest things that people ask me about 
is they say, how do you get started with like nothing? You know, and that's actually the hardest question because there's a lot of people who don't have the talent, don't have the skills, don't have the energy or whatever. And then there's other other people who who they have so many responsibilities already and so little capitalism or yeah. so little capital. I, like, I joke with my friends. I'm like, dude, capitalism is a really hard game to play if you have no capital. Yeah, it is. But here's how you get around it is you do what I did is you learn a skill and then you go network your ass off to find somebody that will pay you to do it. Right. And then you start accumulating some capital, which frees you up to do things. And it's hard, but that it is a proven thing. It works. I also feel like something that's undervalued and gets too bad of a bad name is uh, burning the candle on both ends. Yes. Meaning like I feel like there is this whole world of entrepreneurship, which is I think people refer to it as like side hustles, but it's like keep your day job. I don't know yes. if, you've, if you've experienced this, but there's so many people who go, I've got this idea for a website, quitting my job next month. And I go, well, well slow down, slow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Slow, slow down. Do you have an audience yet? Right. Yeah. Because you need an audience first and then you need to monetize that audience and you you're you're 10 steps ahead of yourself. And then what they do is they quit their job. They go all in on this thing. They actually make some progress, but they don't make progress enough to live like a life of pure comfort. Yeah. Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this a lot, I think, in really good ways. He's like, well, you got a nine to five. That's cool. What are you doing from 7 p.m. to 1 a.m. every day? I agree. Yeah. You can get a lot fucking done. Like you said earlier, if you just. That was all of hard times. Yeah. Uh, if you put in a solid one to four hours of work on something a day, you can get a lot done. That's all hard times is built after my job at SF Weekly and during Bill's job at an electrical supply warehouse um, where his bosses were actually OK with him. Uh, he was like a good salesman. And when, when the calls came in, he did his job. Um, but they knew that he was writing articles on the side. And they, they said, hey, good luck. We're happy for you. You know, we, we hope your thing takes off. And just that little in-between time is where we made a difference in our own lives. Mm -hmm. you know? And is it healthy? Probably not, right? Because I would be working 18 hours, you know, whatever. It well, I don't think anybody would say that entrepreneurship <laughs> is good for your physical or mental health yeah it's bad for you in, right? in, in the short term at least yeah. like i don't think anybody would say that but once i got over that hump i'm a big advocate for burn the candle at both ends and understand that time and human capital can be your biggest resources partner up with someone who's who's willing to burn the candle at both ends too. find something give each other some equity and, and build a business with fucking nothing because then at the end of the day you have something that's how you go from nothing to something, right? You make something. Yeah. So you're originally from the Bay Area, right? Yeah. How much of this do you think comes from growing up there in a place where entrepreneurship is so much a part of the DNA of like that part of the world? I don't know, man. I Sometimes I laugh about how California my lifestyle is. Uh -huh. Like just growing up going, look, I'm a, I'm a punk kid who has a like three companies and a tech startup. So I'm like, this is like, I went, you know, I grew up going to shows at Gilman Street and, um, you know, I'm surrounded by news about all these businessmen doing doing their thing. I become a journalist. I have to start reporting on some of these guys. There was a, a meaningful time in my life, maybe five, six years ago, where I said, you know what? I am sick about reading and writing about all this money that is changing hands above my head. Mm -hmm. um, like I'm at my house in the Bay Area and the money is like, oh, $10 million here, $20 million here. 
And there's just fucking sickening amounts of money going around. You know, I live in Seattle, same thing. We live right between Microsoft and Amazon. Mm -hmm. Sickening amounts of money changing hands. And it's super influential to me to just know that that's happening around me and going, I just need a little fucking bite of that and I'm good. Dude, the table scraps. Yes. I joke I joke with my friends. I'm like, look, I don't need to be the I don't need to be a hot shot. No. I want to be the poor guy on the block, but I just want to be on the block. The table scraps will go a long way. Yeah, I I had I started a startup. We raised a little bit of money. We're raising more. I got my little I got my table scraps. It wasn't easy. I had to learn a lot. I got some here, I got some books my advisor sent me right here. <laughs> this is uh Outvoice. Yeah. It's one of venture deals. Be okay. smarter than your lawyer and venture capitalist. My Who's that one by? This one is by Bradfield and Jason. Oh, okay. He's great. And this one is uh, this is the one I I mostly read, Secrets of Sand Hill Road, by Scott Cooper. Okay, I don't know that one. This is the one I got a advisor. His name is Dee's. He sends me books in the mail. Dee's nuts. <laughs> but yeah, man, I think that I'm I'm pretty California. I just like to eat tacos and sure playing punk bands and start tech companies. I, I I don't know what I'm doing. Well, last thing is. A lot of what we talked about as far as like equity and, you know, giving people opportunity and stuff falls under the heading of leadership, which is something that does not get discussed at all in our world. And I think that is a fucking tragedy because whether you are running a business or putting putting together shows or you're in a band or whatever, like leadership is a skill that everybody needs to have and i think it's a shame that nobody ever 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 talks about it in the scene is that something that you've put conscious effort into what does that word mean to you very good question i feel like i'm learning more about being a leader all the time i don't know if i'm excellent at it yet i I definitely feel like i believe in a snowball effect where i believe that each positive step you make in your own life through the help of friends family advisors etc each positive step you take will make you bolder on your next step. And I, I think when you book a show successfully and a touring band comes to town and you let them crash at your place and you get them food and you, everyone gets paid out and they're happy. It's a good show. They tell you it's better than the last time they came here last year. Uh, you did a better job. They like the flyer, et cetera. I think that gives you a, a, a boost in your step. And then you feel like you can book a bigger show. You feel like you can book a tour. You feel like you can book your own band's tour. You can put out your own band's record. And I feel like eventually through that punk scene stuff, it's really not that far of a stretch to say I'm going to start my own company. Not at all. Because you already did. If you booked a show or put out a record, you already did start your own company, whether you know it or not. Yeah. And then it's not that far to say, okay, look, I'm, I started a company. I sold it for a million bucks. Well, now I'm going to start a company. I'm going to sell, I'm going to sell it for like 500 million bucks. It's, mm-hmm. actually, it's actually not that far of a, of a stretch. Especially once you understand, oh, this is how a company, these are the mechanics of what would make a company worth $500 million. Do I have a credible shot at making something that looks like a company that's worth $500 million? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I could do that. Okay, I don't know if you think about this. I think a lot about how anything that's been done before by someone likely can be done again by you. Sure. Maybe not everything. There's some hard skills out there. You know, there's some rocket scientists who are doing stuff, but there's yep. there's so much that, you know, people aren't really that special. No one's really that unique. Right. I don't, I don't think I'm that unique of a guy. I think that just with each step, you get bolder and bolder and you start saying, how far can I push myself? And you get to that edge where you're pushing yourself far enough where you're making mistakes and you're failing, you have to be failing pretty often so that you can learn from each mistake. And that's how you're growing. And I do, I think that the path from booking a punk show 
to successfully raising money for a startup company and, and selling into businesses and it's the same sig- thing significant annual reoccurring revenue i don't i it it felt like the same thing to me it's the same thing instead of wearing like crust vests or wearing like patagonia vests but it's the same thing it feels like a logical step now i don't think all my friends agree with me on that and but i i believe that there's there's these steps that like are get demystified. So when you look at like uh, some of the stuff that Black Flag did where they like demystified touring and you can yeah. go now read up about it. I think those books are very similar to these books over here that my tech company advisor was giving me about how to raise money. I think it's, look, people have done this shit before. Yeah, and they will tell you exactly how to do it in excruciating detail. Like if you go to howtostartastartup.com, there's the fucking playbook. So why should I sit at home and not be a part of it? Yeah. It, that was that's my my mo is I, i'm saying look so everyone's out here improving their lives but i don't get to because it's a little bit mystical because i'm not quite sure because i don't quite have the right connections yeah i can fix that if you choose to sit that out that's a choice you can't yeah. complain about that you chose to sit it out yeah so i think you got to get out there make a shit ton of mistakes uh learn every day and then uh eventually you get some victories i've got i've got a couple victories and uh i told my my, one of my friends recently, I said, you know, when I go to eat out, I can get a Coke and I don't have to worry about the fact that it's two bucks extra. Dude, there was a time <laughs> in my life where that was a real choice, a real decision that had to be considered. That's super real. And, you know, I think when you've gone from that to a little bit above that, everything else is icing on the cake. Absolutely. That's what I realized about Enrique, the guy who bought Hard Times. He grew up so rough that he has this incredible ability to risk so much. And I think the reason is, is everything is icing on the cake to him. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's just like just having a roof over his head is like, that's that's the icing on the cake. Yeah. And I think that there's some power in that. I think the punk scene has some powerful philosophies in it. They also have some pretty dumb ones. Yeah. But I, I, I think that it's like a logical thing. That's why I've always been intrigued by what you're doing because I do think that the punk rock scene, hardcore scene, I think it's a straight shot. It's like hardcore school right into entrepreneurship. And, and Absolutely. You know, you know, Jack from Twitter was a security guard at Gilman Street. Oh, so I, I knew that he, he went volunteer. to shows, but I, did, I didn't <laughs> yeah. know that he actually went to Gilman. <laughs> yeah. There's like, you can find pictures of him. I went to Gilman and I asked some of the people because I heard that rumor. I said, is that true? They said, yeah. You can find little pictures of him with uh, like, I think he had little globe spikes. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, uh, I'm sure you're busy, busy guys. So, uh, I want to respect your time. I'll let you go, but I appreciate this very much. Great conversation. Is there anything you wanted to add or plug before I let you go? Well, thanks for, thanks for having me, man. I, I appreciate the time. It's, uh, it's good to catch up. I appreciate what you're doing. I, I don't know what to plug. You know, my name is Matt Sankum. You can hit, hit me up on Twitter. If you want to talk about something interesting, if you run a publication and you want to handle your freelance content creators in a better way, automate away their invoicing, Go to outvoice.com is one of my companies. If you like finance or stocks, go to hardmoney.net. If you like video games, hard drive. If you like punk music, probably most of this this audience here, check out The Hard Times. And yeah, that's it. Thanks for having me, man. Cool. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. 
Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com.